0: Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. That the movies, an international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away.
1: I've seen Star Wars about a dozen times. Obishto Star
0: Wars. Seventeen times. Star Wars. Uh, twenty-two times. Twenty-four
1: Forty times, and it was great each time. About fifty-seven times. You can never get too much of Star Wars. I. I've seen the first Star Wars 153 times.
2: All together, we have seen Star Wars 324 times. We've been here for six days and it's great!
0: Hello there, welcome to episode 10 of the Star Wars at the Movies podcast. I'm Stephen Danley and we'll be heading back to the late 70s and early 80s for this installment with a trio of guests with ties to the Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio. Now, I'd argue that Cincinnati's a place with as much of a Star Wars connection as, say, San Rafael or Van Nuys. Like those two California cities with their Lucasfilm and ILM ties, Cincinnati was also an epicenter of creative output and ingenuity that made Star Wars what it was and and continues to be. It was the birthplace of Kenner's legendary toy line, and when you consider the combined impact of the movies and toys on those that grew up in the area, it's an undeniable focal point on the Star Wars map.
3: And it all started in Cincinnati.
2: your best!
0: Cincinnati also happens to have a rich cinema history. While its grandest movie palace for 50 years, the Albee Theater on 5th Street was torn down in 1977, modern top-of-the-line multi-screen venues were establishing themselves in the suburbs as the place to see big first-run movies. One such theater was the Showcase Cinemas in nearby Springdale, which happened to be one of the 32 theaters in the U.S. where Star Wars initially debuted on May 25th. The Springdale Showcase had opened just about four years prior, in July of 1973, with amenities including but not limited to acres of free lighted parking, exclusive rocking chair loungers, and climate-controlled auditoriums for year-round viewing comfort. Perhaps most important of all, the Showcase offered state-of-the-art projection and sound equipment. It was apparently the second theater in the state of Ohio to install Dolby Stereo, the first was the Carousel Theater, another Cincinnati spot, and Dolby arrived with good reason. Star Wars. The original film would go on to play at the Springdale Showcase for an astounding 59 weeks, a record for the venue that remained at the top throughout its history. Though Star Wars wasn't presented in 70mm at the Showcase, The Empire Strikes Back opened there in 70 with six-track Dolby stereo and in its initial limited release on May 21, 1980, for a 36-week run of its own. My first guest was one of those Springdale Showcase customers with a particular fondness for Empire, and as you'll find out, she was also a frequent patron of the Skywalk Cinemas in downtown Cincinnati. Situated in what was once a three-mile system of elevated and mostly enclosed passageways, the Skywalk Cinemas had its grand opening in May of 1973, and was the entertainment hub of this bustling metropolitan pedestrian grid. The Twin Theater was best known for its weekly rowdy midnight screenings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but, uh... No Mini Clear established a different movie going routine in the summer of 1980. Here's No Mini with part one of this episode's triple feature presentation.
3: And now for our feature presentation.
2: I was born in Sri Lanka and I didn't move to Cincinnati till I was five. So that was, I guess, seven years before Star Wars was released. But Cincinnati was all I knew, and at the time Star Wars came out, Cincinnati was just electrified because it was the time of the big red machine. And um, even today, people get really excited about that, even if they're not from Cincinnati.
0: Were you a big baseball fan back then?
2: Not one. Bit. i had no appreciation for the season tickets my parents had sometimes i would take a, i mean this is how awful it was it's not till i took my son to see his first baseball game that i finally realized what i had witnessed yeah. <laughs> all those decades ago and i appreciated it but the whole city was just electrified and um now i was in my own world I, I, i'm a complete geek to me the world was star trek and books and um, I was a huge Star Trek fan. I've, of course, I was watching it in reruns, and I just read and read and read and read. I was an only child. My um, brother was not born till I was fourteen, so really not till After Empire came out. And I was pretty sheltered growing up, so I didn't even really hear of the movie. <laughs> I think what happened was my father, the reason I love Star Trek is my father was a sci-fi fan. I mean, he even remembers the original Flash Gordon, you know, with the kitchen table special effects. And so he wanted to see it. So he just grabbed me one day and we went to see it. It must have been pretty early on. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And to be honest, I did not have this huge reaction. I liked the movie, but it was not A new hope that made me the Star Wars person I am today. I enjoyed the movie, and I think I ended up seeing it maybe five or six times over the year. But I remember going into school next day, and it must have been... This is why I think I saw it very early on. And there was this girl in our class, and she pointed out something that I totally missed. She was talking about how Darth Vader's TIE fighter had spun off at the end, which indicated there was going to be a sequel and that, I just kind of overheard the conversation, and I was like, oh, yeah, and sequels weren't common then. So I just, I went through just life. I was a tween at the time, and then it was 1980, and I wanted to, I did want to see Empire Strikes Back. So my father took me. The moment Yoda said his first word, Star Wars became a way of life for me.
3: Still... Something
0: familiar about this place. I don't know.
2: I feel like feel like
0: like we're being watched.
2: Oh, put your weapon! I mean you no harm. I am wondering, why are you here?
0: I'm looking for someone.
2: Looking? Found someone you have? I would say.
1: <laughs> right
2: literally i would not leave the movie theater back then they didn't clear them out in between screenings and my father was really upset with me but i insisted we save for the next show and i was just addicted i mean here i am a 13 year old teen and i'm buying both tiger beat magazine for the pictures of the guys in it and star log for the sci-fi films and um you know I immediately had to have Star Wars sheets on my bed, Star Wars curtains, well, Empire sheets, Empire curtains, every single toy that came out. And I did not, I knew Kennard was in Cincinnati, but I really didn't make that connection then. But it does not make sense why everything was available in our market.
0: So, what about Yoda was it that, that drew you to him so much?
2: Well, I think what it was is I was very into Taoism at the time. And basically, that was my. I was raised Buddhist, but I didn't buy into it because I I don't agree with a lot of it. And so my spiritual journey was just taking me to Taoism. I was 13. It's kind of that time when you think about things. And basically, the force is the Tao. They're they're almost the same concept. But even before he talked about the force, there was something about him because it was literally he just said his first few words. And I was completely hooked right at that moment. It was just so cute and funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
2: Yoda's funny before you realize he's Yoda, the Jedi Master, (laughs) you know? And so I just, I loved it. It was just amazing. I was in trance, just completely.
0: So do you remember much about the theater that you saw Empire at? And was it a place that you'd been to before or had gone to often?
2: A movie theater had just opened up I saw Star Wars there, too, maybe a couple, two or three years before Star Wars, and it was like cutting edge for its time. It was the showcase cinemas in Springdale, and it was only about eight minutes from where we lived. And even when we moved in between Star Wars and Empire, it was still only about 10, 15 minutes, and it was still the cutting edge movie theater in 1980. I mean now it's kind of funny it's so dated and I think the original theater has since been demolished and a new one a new big multiplex was built in the same place in I think 1999 but um, it just blew me away and you know what I now actually realize I did see it in 35 millimeter and I've never noticed the differences. The reason I know that I saw it in 35 millimeter, and this is probably going to shock you, is I was so addicted to this movie. And I was born in Sri Lanka. My parents had no idea about summer camp or anything like that. So they didn't make any plans for me for the summer. I would go to, I'm pretty sure Cincinnati downtown is connected by a skywalk that at the time I think was about three miles long. And there was a movie theater called Skywalk Cinemas there. And it was the one that showed Rocky Horror at midnight. But it would just show one other movie. It wasn't a big movie theater. And again, like I said earlier, these were the days where you paid for the first showing. And you could sit there as long as you wanted. They didn't empty the theater before showings so i would go for the first showing at 11 a.m which was a matinee showing so i only had to pay two dollars and i would sit there through all five showings (laughs) and my parents worked downtown so i just went and met them and they took me home i was writing in a notebook every performance i saw and by the end of the summer i had hit 100 wow within 12 weeks and i and that's when i stopped counting and this was on top of having the bootleg VHS tape, which I got a few weeks after it came out.
0: Okay, so it was, it was Empire all the time then.
2: It was Empire. It still is Empire, yeah. So I think that's interesting that Star Wars, I mean, now I love Star Wars, but that it didn't draw me in in the way Empire did. I was talking to some of my friends from high school and they said, you could not shut up about Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) Like there was a back hallway where we were always playing cards. And they said, you just talked about all these things about Yoda that never occurred to any of us. (laughs) And um, they all say the same thing. And so it's like, yeah. And it was funny because I was talking to each of them separately. And they were all like, yeah, we went and saw it here. We went and saw it. And then another one would say, we went and saw it at this theater. And so I think apparently I was just dragging my friends <laughs> as much as I could to see as many showings <laughs> as I could. And every time there was a promotional, I would have my mother drive me to go get it, like the Burger King glasses. <gasps> I was I was so on top of all of that stuff. And And there was this video rental place on the wa- whatever route i was taking to get to skywalk cinema on the skywalk i would pass the shop and he also sold movie memorabilia so that's from whom i got the bootleg i also had all the movie posters all the one sheets in all the versions i had the um press release kits the lobby cards i even had the six sheet that they had um For the teaser, with just Darth Vader on it, and I really wish I had this memorabilia today. (laughs) I and I kept buying it, so I even had all the Revenge of the Jedi stuff that first came out before all the Return came out, and so it was really cool because you know I'd always stop by his shop on the way to the theater, so that was fun. And and this and I just lived Empire. That was my life. That and reading. I was not your typical teenager. (laughs) I was 13 when Empire came out, and I turned 14 the following September. So my entire birthday party was Empire. I had Empire invitations. I had all the party supply stuff. I had a sleepover because that's what we did in those days. And we watched the bootleg version of Empire on VHS, and I had a cake that had. Yoda on it, which at that time was cutting edge too. Right. Yeah. I mean, nowadays kids get these amazing cakes. Back then, we didn't. <laughs> you know, your mom basically homemade your cake. But I convinced my parents that we would go into a bakery, and we would have to explain to them exactly what they had to do and what they had to draw on the cake. I really, it was. I, I'm as geeky as you can get, and I and I didn't even know it at the time. And it lasted that way, all. Through until 1983, I remember when Return of the Jedi was coming out, and I cannot remember where I saw Return of the Jedi. It was not at Showcase because by then a bunch of other big movie theaters had opened up in the Cincinnati in Cincinnati itself, and I think I saw it at Tri County. I I remember. Seeing pictures of all these men Camped out Mm -hmm. to buy tickets Because there was no Fandango So you had to get them at the box office And I was so jealous Because, you know, I'm 15, 16 And my parents won't let me go Camp out on the street alone For six days (laughs) So that I can be in line to buy tickets For the premiere of Return of the Jedi One of the local radio stations Was giving away free tickets So for an entire weekend I sat on the floor with a touchstone phone, you know, where you had to push the buttons. And I just, I wouldn't move because I didn't want to, I didn't want to take any chance that I would miss one of the times they were giving them away. And and I I just, every time they announced the giveaway, I would start dialing, you know, pushing all the buttons. And there's, of course, no redial. So if we don't get through, you have to push it again. And I was getting really upset because there was no other way I was going to see the premiere be there on premiere day because my parents wouldn't let me camp out to get tickets and um, I think it was over a weekend and towards the very end I got through and I just was screaming I was so excited and I took one of my friends I guess whoever I could convince to put up with me that <laughs> was Ramona and she, uh, she said that when Yoda died I started crying I don't remember that, but that's apparently what. Yeah, I, I, I can see that happening. But I was so upset, and I did love Return of the Jedi, but it came out what in May of 1983, and I graduated from high school a few weeks later, so okay, and left yeah. Cincinnati, so I didn't see Return of the Jedi very much at the movie theater.
0: Yeah, wow, yeah, that is that's quite a a six year run to be in Cincinnati.
2: It was, yeah, it was an exciting time, and I think. I didn't, you know, the the fact that Kenner was there and these movies were so popular was probably adding to the excitement, even though I didn't realize it. But Cincinnati was just exciting. All the top rock groups would come there, the Who, the Stones. And um, it's just, I don't know what it is about that city because it's not that big of a city. But it all started out with the big red machine, and it just that excitement just continued, even though by the time Empire came out, they had started to die down, and the best players weren't there, but Star Wars was going strong.
0: Yeah, you know, speaking of its continued strength, how has Star Wars maintained an influence on your life, and what part did those initial movie-going experiences play in that?
2: I'm one of those people that would say Star Wars is a way of life for me, and that all goes back to Empire first seeing it back in 1980 and i saw it within if not the day it premiered within a week and it's like i think it's true with a lot of star wars fans we can have conversations just by using star wars quotations and that dates back to that time and I, it never left my mind yoda he still has this great presence in my mind i'm not taoist but that, the study of Taoism was amazing. I find the study of the Force amazing. And I, it, did, uh, I, it did die down with me, I think, when my son was born, just because I was preoccupied elsewhere. So when the prequels came out, I did see them, but it was not as big a part of my life. And um, But then I returned to it in about 2009. I started collecting again. But then my son, who was only nine, totally destroyed my toys. (laughs) And um, and we finally reached an agreement that the Legos could be his. (laughs) (laughs) The other ones were mine. But then we went to Disney Weekend, and um, I think it was Memorial Day 2014. And it just we went on a VIP tour, and it just revived everything. And I had no idea about the forums. I'm like a dinosaur. That stuff was completely above my head. And I didn't know it existed. (laughs) And I don't know how I came back into, because there was no one. I didn't know anybody else that liked Star Wars. Because I I know a lot of people who saw it when they were younger, had friends on their street. And they would play with the Star Wars toys together. But I was a tween and, and a girl at that. And so I didn't really have anyone to share it with. And I never did until just about two years ago. It's interesting how it has the same hold on me as it did when I was fourteen. So does that mean I just haven't grown up? <laughs>
1: uh,
0: I, if you but, haven't, then a lot of us haven't either. So
2: <laughs> I mean, I'm like stuck in adolescence—what right. an awful place to be stuck! <laughs> <laughs>
0: thanks again for for coming on the podcast it's it's been great to have you
2: i was honored when you asked me thank you it was it was just an exciting time in cincinnati and i'm glad i I, i'm glad i was there
0: Skywalk sounds like it was a great place to catch a movie on a hot summer day, but as is often the case, trends change with the times, and as the Skywalk itself was reduced over the years, establishments like its twin cinema faded away. It appears the theater closed in early 1991, eventually making way for a new Fountain Square West building project. No many also mentioned most likely seeing Return of the Jedi at the Tri-County Cinemas, which opened in July of 1975, initially with three screens. Operated by Mid-State Theatres and located a couple miles southeast of the Showcase in Springdale, Tri-County advertised that, quote, With a trio of screens from which to choose, the odds in favor of your finding the best in film entertainment are now 3 to 1. Much like the Springdale Showcase, it also touted thousands of free, brightly illuminated parking spaces. A super deal, to be sure. And by 1983, the triplex had become a fiveplex, and Jedi debuted in 70mm there on May 25th for an impressive 41 week engagement. Jedi also opened at two other mid state locations in the area the Northgate Cinemas in Cincinnati and the Florence Cinemas across the Ohio River in Florence, Kentucky, each with 41 week dominance of their own. Good. For my next guest, Dave Brott, catching re releases of big movies at the Esquire Theater in the Cincinnati neighborhood of Clifton was a Regular occurrence as a kid in the early 80s. Unlike the majestic Albi, the Esquire survived the rise of the suburban multiplex, albeit barely. Dave mentions it in the interview, but uh, to give a bit of additional context, the Esquire had been standing since its 1911 opening as the Clifton Opera House, and had seen decades of success as an art house cinema. By 1983, however, it was a fast-food empire that posed the biggest threat when the theater was forced to close. Wendy's was aiming to establish a restaurant in Esquire's location, and that would not only mean the loss of a landmark theater, but a permanent change of the Clifton Gaslight District's character. While the Jedi returned triumphantly onscreen at the area's big multiplexes, the rebellious residents of Clifton fought back triumphantly to save their own neighborhood theater. President of the newly formed Clifton Theatre Corp, Dorothy Muirner, had said at the time that, quote, it's us against the big boys. And after a three-year legal battle all the way up to the Ohio Supreme Court, the cinema's supporters emerged victorious and began fundraising to reopen the Esquire. It was fittingly reborn in 1990 with a screening of Cinema Paradiso, and in 2012 was named one of the top ten reasons to visit Cincinnati in USA Today. I just love stories like that. Feeling all right, sir? Just like new Dak, how about you? Right
1: now I feel like I can take on the whole empire myself. I know what you
0: mean. Heading across the river to see movies was another family routine for Dave, including a viewing of Return of the Jedi. As for the exact location, the sister showcase in Erlanger, Kentucky came up as a possibility, but I couldn't confirm that Jedi had actually played there. With Showcase's competitor mid-states having booked the movie in the region, there's a good chance that it may have been at the Florence. But anyhow, on to part two of the feature presentation.
3: I was born in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, 1976, uh, but I don't really remember that at all. We moved here in 1978, so I've been in Cincinnati since I was about two, or I grew up here anyway. I've lived here off and on, I live here now. And um, early interests, uh, based on my age, I'm sure you can guess that I don't really remember a time before Star Wars. It was, uh, you know, the toys were always around. My earliest memories were of. Uh, Playing with, uh, you know, like Red Snaggletooth and Walrus Man. And then along with that, I had a few, I had some, uh, let's see, Flash Gordon toys, I guess, the Beast Man and Lion Man and all that stuff. And those guys kind of all were together. My earliest uh, memories of Star Wars are basically those toys. Before that, yeah, I had concurrent interests, but nothing really that is, uh, it's not like there was one day where Star Wars hit me like it is for people a little older than us. Jedi, probably, uh, it's still my favorite of all the movies. Part of that is nostalgia, but a big part of it is I just think it's a great movie. Yeah. It gets bepooed by a lot of people for various things, but uh, I think it's, it's my favorite of the original trilogy, and those are my three favorites.
0: That's fair. Uh, so do you remember going to the movies when you were a kid, and were there any aside from Star Wars that had an impact on you?
3: Yeah, I do. Um, the movies that had an impact on me were the ones basically that scared me, and they're all <laughs> the ones that I love now. Yeah. I went to I saw Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in a theater, Um, I don't know how that's possible, because I would have been five when I came out, but it definitely happened. So I think I must have been... There's a theater near me in Cincinnati, Ohio, the Esquire Theater in Clifton. Back then, um, they must have rerun a lot of movies or something. I remember seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark with my mom and my sister. Um, So it must have been some kind of re-release in that theater. And uh, I remember still to this day, at the end of that movie, when the faces melt of the Nazis, my mom covered up both of our eyes so we couldn't see so i tried to push her hand away and i did get to see the faces melting and it did scare me so she was doing her mother duty correctly it's just uh it's too late there was no way to google what would happen back then so i I really liked raiders uh, but it really did scare me I, I saw ET in the theater, which uh, I remember being very scared by that. Um, and I because at the beginning, uh, I don't know, they're in the woods. ET is running, people are chasing him, but I really thought that he was a monster chasing them. I liked the movie a lot after that. And I remember I ate so many uh, Reese's Pieces that summer that they still. It's I still get a little sick when I think of it. You know, like the, the the I like Reese's Pieces, but if I eat more than just a couple, I have that flashbacks to just eating way too much of that. I guess that would have been 1982, and again, that's pretty, I that would have been like six, so I was pretty young. I mean, my dad took me to that. He would take us to anything. One of my favorites still to this day.
0: Yeah, I, definitely a classic, and, and one that I actually was <laughs> really scared of when I was younger, too. Um, so do you remember what the Esquire looked like?
3: Yeah, I do. It's um, it's actually still there now. Uh, it closed and reopened for a while, but it's, it's an old... Uh, it's a theater that's been around for a long time. It has an old-fashioned marquee. It's, on a, um, it's in a shopping district here in Cincinnati uh, near the University of Cincinnati in a part of a town called Clifton. So, you know, it's, it's a place you walk up to. It's right next to other shops. Uh, there's no parking lot uh, or anything like that. And it's uh, got, now I think it's got six screens, but I think when I was a kid, it only had three, perhaps. It's expanded a bit since then. I could walk there from my dad's house, and I did sometimes when I was older. Um, and uh, it has, a, it had, and has a very old world uh, feel to it in terms of uh, you know a cinema paradiso kind of place, which is great. Uh, nowadays they get a lot of kind of art house films. Um, when I was a kid, I'm not sure because I do remember seeing these other, these movies there. But if there were art house films playing there, then obviously I wouldn't have gone to those as a kid. But they definitely did uh, re releases of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. But for example, I never saw Return of the Jedi there, so I'm not sure they ever had first run movies they might have had um kind of re-releases and things like that but it's uh the, the theater closed um I could look up the years here but I remember it basically closed down during my youth and just became a derelict theater and there was some talk I remember of putting a Wendy's there I was sad it was closed because I liked it and uh I remember there were being yard signs like saying no Wendy's here where the people didn't want it and I remember my Aunt Pam explaining to me I was like why wouldn't people want a Wendy's there Wendy's is really good and she was like, well, you know, this area, the shopping district, they don't want to turn it into, like, fast food alley. And I guess I kind of understood that when I was a kid, but not really. And then thankfully, years later, somebody bought it and reopened it. And uh, a good friend of mine uh, was a general manager there for a long time. So, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in that theater, both in my childhood and adult years, and uh, I still go there now. Oh,
0: that's awesome. Yeah, with uh, so many of these small local theaters being long gone, it's, it's always great to hear one that's revived. So how did you first become aware of Star Wars, if you remember, and what about it caught your interest?
3: Well, I can tell you what I definitely do remember. It was, um, I remember, you know, playing with the toys. Uh, I was lucky enough to have the Ad-At Walker uh, for Christmas in, I guess, about 82. I got that as a toy. That was one of my favorites of all time. And um, I remember that, and of course, playing Star Wars in the playground. Um, I don't remember... How I first would see the movies because again I would be too young and I guess they were they were on TV from time to time. It's funny actually. I remember um, still uh, where the commercial breaks fell in some of uh, Star Wars. I remember right after Vader has the droid where he's uh, the interrogation droid for Leia, and then they cut away. That's right where a commercial would go. It's funny that I remember that, but I somehow do. And um, I did, again, I saw that in the theater, same theater, Esquire Theater, uh, with my mom. Um, And I think, I I remember very distinctly, this will interest you, I think, that there was in the newspaper, which, you know, back then we got the newspaper, an ad for Star Wars that said something to the effect of, um, you know, in theaters again for a week or one more week, or there was definitely a deadline in the ad. I showed that to my mom, you know, I was young enough that I didn't really totally understand calendars. I think. I don't know. But somehow I got her to take us to that. Even though I had seen it, I'm pretty sure. Because I remember we watched it. It was fun to watch it in the movie theater. It had to have been some kind of re-release of Star Wars. And, um, you know, people talk about how they forget Star Wars is funny sometimes. The scene in the movie where the Jawas shoot R2-D2 and he falls over and makes that screeching noise and kerplunk. I remember that the adults in the theater all laughed and I just could not believe, I was like, that is R2-D2, you guys. He just got hurt. You know, like how can you laugh at that? Yeah. And I, that was, I was too young to get that that was supposed to be comedic. I was very concerned about R2-D2's well being. That was at a time when it was all blurred together. Like I didn't really know the difference between Empire Strikes Back or Star Wars. I remember even calling it the Empire's Striped Back. I didn't understand what the title of the film was. Um, <laughs> So I don't know if I ever saw Empire in a theater, but I definitely saw Star Wars in a theater.
0: So you did get to see Return of the Jedi when it was first released, yeah.
3: Absolutely. That's my big uh that's my big memory. I still have very fond memories of everything. I'm I'm one of those kids of the 80s who just I I remember everything through rose colored glasses, but my huge memory of Jedi. I remember it coming out. I remember kids on the on the playground saying um, it was it was actually they were they. I remember one kid said it was episode ten and that they skipped um, several ones in between and they were going right to the end and then they were going to go back and make those. And I went to it kind of believing that. I mean, I knew it was the end, but I I wasn't sure. I don't think I even knew the originals were episode four and five at that point. But in '83, I would have been seven, so I, I do remember going. Uh, my dad picked my sister and I up from uh, daycare at Emanuel Presbyterian Church in Redding Clifton. Uh, and we drove to, I guess, probably showcase, showcase cinema down in northern Kentucky. Uh, Cincinnati's right on the river, so we would go f- across the river a lot for movies. My stepbrother was already in the car in our old station wagon, and uh, I hadn't seen him in a day or two. Our, my parents were divorced, and my sister and I went back and forth every other day. So he had new Return of the Jedi action figures. Yeah, he had in the car, uh, going to the movie, uh, Walrus Man and uh, – let's, let's see who it was. Bib Fortuna – sorry, not Walrus Man. i got to turn in my nerd card. It was Bib Fortuna and uh, Squid Face. Squidhead, excuse me. Anyway, he had these in the car, and he was showing to me. I thought they were so cool with their their flocked capes. You know, they would right. seen a lot of that at that point. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And I loved – my brother and I loved the monster toys. I didn't have a Han or a Luke, really. We were always after the aliens. <laughs> so he was telling me it's like this one is called bib fortuna and this one is called squid head and my dad said like don't talk about the movie and my stepbrother who's a little older he's about nine at that point said like we're not talking about the movie we're talking to- i just have these and my dad said no don't talk about the movie we didn't use the sp- word spoilers back then but he was very emphatic that he didn't want brian to give any movie details away And my brother was like god it's not talking about the yeah. movie it's talking about the toys and so i still remember that like arguments like that were frequent in my house with uh <laughs> just little moments about whatever, little things. And uh, it was fun. So we all went down there, and I still remember uh, really enjoying the movie. I remember really being blown away by Jabba the Hutt and the Rancor. I thought yeah. that was those were great. I remember thinking the Ewoks were great. I still think that. And I remember really having to go to the bathroom badly at the end of the movie and not going. This is so weird and, like, too personal maybe, but when Luke was getting electrocuted by the Emperor, I remember just thinking, like, if that was me right now, I would just... Like, I would just lose it. I couldn't make it to the bathroom. You know, I would, yeah, like, I just was thinking about that for some reason. And in many subsequent viewings, I still would have that weird visceral reaction near the end of the movie. Cause I was always a snack and I would always not want to leave the theater, even though I knew what would happen. Yeah. We did see it a lot of times, but I remember, uh, I remember also being in the theater that day and, um, this, the previous show was letting out. I have no idea if this was the premiere or not. All I know is that we did it right after daycare um, so, or after school care or something at my church. And, um, I remember the previous show letting out and you could hear the music and see some of the blue letters, a little of the Ewok celebration music during the credits and not really knowing what that was and being excited and getting, being allowed to get popcorn and, you know, all the stuff and going in and like, uh, my parents were great at that. I got to say we did, you know, all families do different things. And a big thing for us was movies. So yeah, like yeah. my dad would always, I remember we would, uh, one time, <laughs> he would bribe us with like, okay, if the three kids spend the morning cleaning the house, then we'll go see Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom uh, <laughs> after lunch. And then we would do that. That was what we did on a lot of Saturdays. It was great. Hurley, ain't it great just you and me <laughs> in the wide open spaces? He up and work them ribs something And <laughs> them tasty fences. <fishes. laughs> oh, I hear you talking. Well.
2: Hey, where are you going, you old coyote? Pizza. I got a hankering for pizza. Where are you gonna get pizza?
3: Same place I got the ribs, Mr. Gaddy's.
1: Boys got a holler leg, but a real taste for the
3: good stuff. Come to Mr. Gaddy's for my tasty barbecue ribs and pizza, too. Better try them. Yeah, I hear you talking. The reason I'm guessing we saw Jedi across the river is because we would often do that on a Friday or Saturday. We would drive across the river, see whatever movie, like Beverly Hills Cop or something, and uh, we would go... Uh, my dad and stepmom would take the three kids to a pizza joint called Mr. Gaddy's, G-A-T-T-I-S, Mr. Gaddy's. And in Mr. Gaddy's, they had a big uh, pizza buffet and video games in the back and a big projector TV where they would show entertainment tonight. I remember that very specifically. Uh, and my dad and stepmom would kind of turn us loose with some quarters. We'd play video games, eat pizza. It was a big deal because every kid got to pick their own pizza, you know, in the house. You don't get to do that and the kids fight, but that was exciting for all three of us that we didn't have to be beholden to anyone else's wishes for what pizza we ate. And um yeah, and then after that we would go get in the car and go to the movies. So I feel like that might have been what we did that night for Return of the Jedi, but that part I don't remember. And uh showcase was there was definitely more than one. The one in Kentucky I think was a showcase, but I'm not sure.
0: Okay. <laughs> Sounds like the uh the perfect Saturday night, really. Uh so being a lover of the Ewoks, do you remember seeing the live-action movies when they came on TV for the first time?
3: Oh, you got, yeah. I, I'm glad you brought that up. I have such vivid memories of the Ewok adventure and then later Battle for Endor. Because that's something I remember. I heard, I think I heard about that through a TV commercial. It might have also been other places, but I feel like I heard of it from a TV commercial. And I saw that that was coming out. I was very excited. And uh, I remember watching it at my parents' house in Oakley. I think a neighbor, a friend of my sister's came over to our house and we watched it over the three of us together. And as far as I was concerned, that was episode seven. You know, I <laughs> like, I really, when I watch it now, I still love it. But I can totally see that it's not, you know, they filmed it in California or I guess they did for both. But yeah. I can totally tell it's not like a full budget movie right. from everything from the acting to the soundtrack to the special effects, which I all still love. But as a kid, I basically saw no difference between, uh, the Ewok Adventure and Return of the Jedi. They were equally, I, I, it was like a new Star Wars movie, but just on TV for some reason.
0: Yeah, they were an extension of Jedi for me too. I think we were both probably just the right age to be digesting them. You've mentioned the toys a few times, uh, and it sounds like, you know, in terms of wanting to take the movies home with you, you actually had a piece of the movies before even seeing them, um. So were you interested in any of the other merchandise, or was it mainly just the
3: toys? It was certainly mainly the action figures. Um, we didn't even really have many of the vehicles. The Adat at was an exception. Um, I remember attempting to, uh, save money to purchase the Rancor myself, and I remember this, this is kind of a uh, sad memory both of toys and math, uh, because my, uh, my allowance at the time was 25 cents a week, and, um the ranker cost $15. Okay. So I thought if I just start if I just start saving these quarters, I'll be there in no time and of course not realizing that <laughs> that would that was basically it would be way out of toy stores by the time I even got there and I didn't even really know what tax was. <laughs> and then also of my allowance I had to tithe to the church, so I had to give uh, a nickel back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I only got netted 20 per, 20 cents per week. And then much later I realized that's more hey mom, that's more than tithing. That's 20%. <laughs> <laughs> you no know, a nickel out of twenty five cents i'm sorry that's that's uh so I was uh getting ripped off by the church and my mom, uh, but of course, she was the one who gave me the allowance and i don 't think I ever expressed this desire to her i 'm sure she would have gotten me that as a present. I think it was more like here 's this money as a way to keep track of money right so I never got the rancor monster, but um as for other things, like that was something I wanted and never got. I remember other kids, and sometimes me, would have other things. Like, I really like those give-a-show projectors. I think Mm -hmm. those are cool. I know I saw one of those as a kid. I don't think we ever had one. Um, There were other fun things like uh, color forms. I I liked those a lot. And we had some, uh, I think they were proper color form sets for Return of the Jedi. I'm not sure if it was color forms or some kind of transfers, but I remember playing with those. Uh, The Burger King glasses were big for me. I really thought those were cool. We had those and uh, used those in the house. Um, But I didn't really do any comics or magazines, which kind of surprises me when I look back. Because I I did get into comics a few years later, and I never, ever picked up a Star Wars comic.
0: Yeah, you know, those old comics had to have been a really important outlet for fans to kind of fill the gaps back then. But uh, from the the handful that I've kind of thumped through, some of them are, are pretty out there. So jumping ahead a bit, you'd mentioned to me that you had
3: an interesting memory of the special edition release in 97. I definitely do. Um, For me, uh, like for a lot of Star Wars fans, I think they were uh, really looking forward to those. And for me, it was uh, at a fever pitch, but I had a problem. And the problem was that I was in college at the time and that I was going to be studying abroad that very semester and I was going to miss it. So I was in, uh, well, I didn't end up missing it, but I was in Budapest, Hungary, or Budapest as the Hungarians say. I did a mathematics program in Budapest. And um, so this was 1997. You know, Star Wars wasn't big, really. It was like, I mean, people were calling it a gamble to re release them, which is kind of absurd now when you look back. Um, But uh, I missed the whole premiere here in the United States by uh, two months or so. The Hungarians premiered the film, um, (laughs) they premiered the film uh, two months later, uh, and it had to all be, uh, you know, subtitled and dubbed for Hungarian audiences. But um, being a big movie fan, I had really learned the movie scene in Budapest quite well with other people on the program. And so we had the date all set. Um, over there, it premiered like late April, early May, something like that. And um, so we had the date all set, and I bought tickets ahead of time for like 20 people uh, that were all in the same uh, math program that I was. Imagine math, math students wanting to see a Star Wars movie. Around. And so uh, we all – it was called, called Chiligak Haberuja over there. That's the translation of Star Wars in Hungarian. And um, I remember that uh, we, we went to the premiere, and um, so we had I had to buy these tickets, find a place that was playing it in uh, version originale, V.O., which was what you'd see in a lot of European magazines, meaning um, not dubbed, you know, and see it in English, in other words. Uh, so there were theaters that would play some American movies uh, in English, and those were usually where we would go, but it would vary uh, movie by movie. Yeah. So sure enough, we got to this premiere of the special edition and uh, you know, the it says a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. But then something weird happened where somebody narrated that in Hungarian. Well, that's a bad sign. You know, this is supposed to not be in Hungarian. And um, it said, maybe they're just reading the English for people. And then the scroll text went and sure enough, there was somebody reading it out loud in Hungarian over the scroll text. And we were all looking at each other like, oh, this is not good. And uh, then you, you'd be surprised. There's a long time at the beginning of star Wars where there's no dialogue. Uh, so it was not clear whether or not we were going to see this in English or not. <laughs> and sure enough, when finally, when the when the Star Destroyer overtakes the Tanty V4, C-3PO said, is supposed to say, what's that? But then he goes, me, Oz? And all of us just collectively, like hit our head into our hand like oh god we're in a hungarian version of this the newspaper screwed <laughs> up so i still wanted to see the movie and uh you know we watched the whole film in hungarian uh the only part that was in english was uh grito's subtitles <laughs> because they dubbed Greedo in hungarian okay. uh so like that was yeah. the only part in english in the whole yeah. movie i guess in the scroll text and right. that got right. far far away so it was very funny but my friends krista and molly uh they kind of uh as we were sitting there just kind of recited the dialogue of the movie because they both had it memorized even better than me which was impressive and we watched the whole thing in Hungarian then the next day we were able to see it in English I found a theater that had an English and we all went to it so but it was pretty uh, it was pretty funny anticipation for that yeah and I really regret so I was in I was in Hungary in 1997 and I now collect uh Hungarian Star Wars things kind of as a result. It's kind of a niche uh, collecting thing for me. uh, Chiligak Habaruja things that Mm -hmm. say that from Hungary. Here I was walking down subways uh, where there would be posters for the Chilagok Habarujia trilogy and um, I would just walk right past them and eventually they would like deteriorate and fall away and become garbage and I never once thought to grab one of these things and bring it back to the States. You know, and I regret that now, now that I'm a collector of weird stuff like old movie tickets and posters and things like that. that here I was right in the middle of all of it and I didn't bring Thomas Ticket Stub, I didn't bring home a popcorn bucket. Yeah. You know, there was, not, there was all this stuff that I could have got and I didn't get any of it, so. Oh, wow. But it was a fun experience. It was great. It was great seeing it. It actually made uh, the anticipation, having to wait an extra two months, actually kind of made it a little bit more exciting.
0: So how has Star Wars maintained an influence on your life, and how big of a role did those original cinematic experiences play in that?
3: Oh, a big role. Um, I'm, I'm now, um, Nowadays, I've uh, boy, I've, I'm one of these people like yourself who just kind of has made Star Wars a primary hobby. Uh, so I'm a collector. I enjoy collecting uh, not only the action figures that my dad was yelling at my brother about in the car all those many years ago, but uh, Many other things, uh, as well. I'm a collector of all the things related to Star Wars. I love what it did for cinema. I love, uh, the way George Lucas, uh, you know, kind of helped push things in a new direction in, uh, 1977 and all the great films we got out of that. I'm a big, uh, movie guy as well, so I like all kinds of movies and I feel like he ushered in a great era that kind of you know went with Steven Spielberg in the '80s and many directors uh, since then uh, that I've really enjoyed. So it's had a big influence on me in in those ways, um, kind of aspects of my life that I really enjoy. Um, I would say.
0: Well, thanks so much, Dave, for coming on the podcast. It's uh, it's been great catching up with you.
3: Thanks. It's uh, it's fun to be on the podcast. I really enjoy listening to it, so it's uh, fun to be a part of it.
2: a Tie Fighter on patrol. They got my solar panels
3: from the Star Wars collection. Batteries not included. And when you see the Star Wars movie at participating theaters, you get Kenner's Cash Refund Booklet, good for refund coupons from 50 cents up to $2 each on 14 different Star Wars toys. Offer expires December 31st, 1979. Void where prohibited. Booklet has details. Star Wars Darth Vader TIE Fighter. New from Kenner.
0: The Kenner toys are definitely a, a frequent topic of discussion on this podcast, and to put it simply, the movie-going and play experiences were tightly interconnected for so many of that original generation, and the ad you just heard demonstrates in a, a subtle way how much the powers that be were aware of it. The 1979 Kenner Star Wars cash rebate booklet that was handed out in movie theaters was just one of several promotions where the that symbiotic relationship between the toys and the cinema manifested itself. For any of it to be possible, though, a toy company first needed to take a risk on an unproven film property at a time where that was just a rare circumstance. One individual that happened to play a significant role in that gamble was Jim Swearengin, who was working in Kenner's preliminary design department when Star Wars was on the table as a potential license for the small, Cincinnati-based company. Part 3 of this triple feature represents a, a story that takes place on two fronts. While Jim's tangible translations of the movie's many toyetic aspects were realized in Kenner's Kroger-building offices in Cincinnati, he also found himself in the thick of the cinematic world of Star Wars at key moments in California and beyond. I'm thrilled that he took the time to share some of those memories with me uh, just before Celebration Chicago earlier this year, and to finally be able to share them here now. But first, a bit more on Kenner and the setting of maybe the most exciting of those moments, the North Point Theater in San Francisco. Positioned on the corner of Bay and Powell Streets, just a few blocks from Fisherman's Wharf, the single-screen North Point had opened in June of 1967 with a, a nine-week run of The Dirty Dozen, and would play host to one epic title after another over the course of its 30-year lifespan. The North Point would cement itself in Star Wars lore on May 1, 1977. George Lucas had decided to preview the film to the public for the first time there, despite the fact that the movie's sound mix was not yet complete. Its unassuming red-brick exterior framed a modest marquee that advertised the current engagement of the Paul Newman hockey comedy Slapshot, with a second entry below that listed quote, uproarious, lusty entertainment, and world premiere, Alaska. Well, there was no movie with that title that came out in 1977, so it seems that Lucas and company were apt to keep things on the down-low while having a bit of fun with it. You'll hear all about Jim's initial reaction, but it feels right to sum up a few more from some other recognizable names that were in the theater with him. Alan Ladd Jr., the movie's champion from 20th Century Fox, was present, and would go on to say that, quote, May 1st was the best. It was the strangest experience I ever had. I'm not very prone to emotions, but when the picture opened up and all of a sudden they just started applauding, the tears started rolling out of my eyes. That has never happened to me. Studio executives can be a bit on the dramatic side, but I'd consider Laddie's reaction sincere. Editor Richard Chu approached Lucas in the lobby following the screening to congratulate him and and share in the exhilaration, yet, as usual, George was, quote, just being old George, uh, hiding any excitement that he may have had. George's father, on the other hand, was apparently very enthusiastic and appreciative to those who had helped George out with his movie. Back in Cincinnati, other Kenner employees would attend special previews of the first two films at none other than the Springdale Showcase. Some apparently went to a press screening of Star Wars on the night of May 24, 1977, complete with a pre-show champagne reception. And for Empire, arrangements were made for a special preview for salaried Kenner employees and their one lucky guest, uh, also at the Springdale Showcase, with screenings taking place on Monday, May 19th at 3 p.m. and Tuesday, May 20th at 9:30 a.m. Invitations to these showings bear the unique Empire Strikes Back logo that Kenner used for their marketing and toy packaging, and stated the following rules, quote, In order to maintain activity in all work areas, employees in each department are being alternated between the two showings. And for those that were slotted for the 9.30am Tuesday show, a stern warning read that they, quote, Do not have to report to work before the showing, but are expected to report to work following the movie. Oh, man. I'm not sure how anyone could get any work done after that Cloud City cliffhanger. All right, with that, let's hit part three with Jim Swearingen.
1: I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Mayfield Heights was where I was born, and I was 1949, so I grew up in the 50s. When people ask if I went to the movies, I, I, I did, but not very often. The 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 Thing I most remember the the movie that most stuck with me through the years, and probably maybe the only one from the fifties was uh, Forbidden Planet, which gave me nightmares. <laughs> um, the Id Monster was was attacking me all the time at night. But after seeing that, we also played around with that concept of the invisible creature. making uh footprints from the id monster in the sandbox because it was like the heel of your hand and then a a dot for the claw on its foot it's probably the only one i remember and i'm we didn't go very often i remember uh there was a neighborhood theater probably the hillcrest or something like that but it's long gone so as you were
0: growing up was sci-fi a genre that started to appeal to you um were you interested in
1: movies more broadly as you got a bit older well, there wasn't very much in the way of sci-fi while I was growing up that I can remember. We actually did not have a television. <laughs> so I was born in 1949. We didn't get a television until I was nine years old. And I I do remember after that, my favorite TV show that I remember is Roy Rogers. I, you know, I liked horses and stuff. It's kind of similar in genre. It's not science fiction, but the play is similar. That's kind of the the influence I grew up with. Okay, so how
0: did you make your way to Cincinnati and eventually Kenner's design department?
1: When I was growing up, I started going to the art museum in Cleveland, Ohio, every Saturday. Um, I would go for art lessons from the time I turned about five years old, and then I every Saturday I was in the in the art museum painting and drawing and. Doing stuff like that. And in highs I grew up in high school, I was uh, involved in all the art program there. And luckily, uh, I had an art teacher. His name was Penfield, Mr. Penfield. He recommended that if I wanted to take my creativity and make a living, rather than going into fine arts, he suggested I look at uh, industrial design. So I applied to Rhode Island School of Design and Pratt in New York, and uh, looking closer to home, I looked at the University of Cincinnati, and that's how I ended up in Cincinnati. I came to school. I interviewed. Used to have to do portfolios to get into school, so I did a portfolio review them for them late in 19 uh, probably 1966. So I got I got into the D A at that time it was D A A now it's D A A P but um, got into the art college there and. the Part that kind of led me to Kenner was it's a co-op program. At that time, it was a five-year program based on quarters, and you would the first year was a full full year, and then when you started in your sophomore year, every ten weeks you were either in school or on a job somewhere. And I was really fortunate. My first job was with General Motors, so I could have been designing cars. Um, and then my second co-op, I spent a summer in uh, the Netherlands working for Philips so I could have been doing shavers. The last co-op sections, I had a couple of them. I went to a small toy company called Rainbow Crafts in Norwood. And uh, when I graduated from college, I was 1A in the draft, and my number was 61. And that I had this really great opportunity in a big ID firm. And when they found out what my number was, they dropped me like a hot potato. But my boss from Rainbow Crafts was now working at Kenner because they had merged the two companies. And he said, I don't care what your number is. You can come and work here. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And I didn't get drafted. I ended up uh, getting a medical deferment. I think I had flat feet or something. Or bone spurs. (laughs) No, I didn't have bone spurs. But I I ended up, at the time, the Vietnam War was winding down. And my draft board back in Cleveland decided they weren't going to draft me. So that's how I got started, Kenner. And then Prelim Design, Bernie Loomis came in, I think he came in. Um, He came in and brought Dave Okada from Mattel and started the Prelim Group, which I think was about 1974. But Dave Okada started the prelim design uh, with Br- Loomis's blessing, and that's how I grew- You know, they were picking people from the other departments and put us together, and that's how I ended up in prelim.
0: Do you remember some of your first projects? I know a lot of, uh, at that time, it seems like television properties were starting to become toy lines. I don't know if you, you worked on some of the earlier pre-Star Wars stuff or what your memories are of, of those pre-Star Wars projects.
1: Well, we worked on a lot of internal, you know, new ideas and stuff. the The first licensed product that we worked on in prelim was the Six Million Dollar Man. It was it was Kenner's first TV license and their first foray into getting involved with that. And it was uh, it was a team of people that worked on it. it. Was you know we weren't a very big design department, so we uh, all pitched in on it. My claim to fame on on the six million dollar man was his uh bionic eye so we made i you know i did the first model of that, and then you know there were other people working on things like the you know we we presented all these kind of crazy concepts to uh ways of translating the t v show into a into a product and then they put'em they kind of put them all together.
0: Yeah, it seems like some of those products for the other properties would kind of serve as templates for some of the early Star Wars merchandise. Um, so, what was your first exposure to Star Wars, and when did that happen?
1: Well, my first exposures probably really started in uh, college when I was in, I graduated in 1972, and the year before that, the Film Society showed THX 1138, which is kind of the first reference I had to George Lucas, and then. Um, in 1976, um, after American Graffiti, I was reading Starlog magazine. It was a fan mag that had come up after Star Trek had left the air on TV. And uh, in the November issue, there was a three-paragraph little blurb about uh, titled Star Wars, and it said that George Lucas and 20th Century Fox had teamed up on the science fiction film and then shortly after that, um, the dates are a little fuzzy. Uh, the script for the movie came into Kenner, and it, as usual, like TV shows, the script came in. David brought it in. It probably came through Bernie Loomis's office or Craig Stokely's. and it was kind of up for grabs. And I, I grabbed it, knowing, knowing that I had kind of already, uh, kind of pre-sold that. George Lucas was doing another science fiction thing, and it was going to be pretty interesting. So that's how I ended. I ended up with the script that first day, took it home that night and read it at home and looked through a set of black and white photographs from the live action that was already completed. And then I brought it back to Dave and said, you know, go in your door and lock it and read this. We got to do it. And he Followed directions, so he came. He came in, uh, out of his office with him and said, "You know, we got it. We do need to pitch this." Yeah. So, Kenner avoided the conventional wisdom yeah, that had made the script get dropped so quickly at other toy companies because they had. They were, you know, a conventional wisdom was a movie. Planet of the Apes was the closest that uh, anything came to a success in toys, and then uh, it was. Science fiction, which the merchandising from Star Trek that was done by Paramount was pretty atrocious, and it turned a lot of people off to science fiction in the toy aisle. And then it was opening in May, which, when I read it, was just months away. The toy business one it took a toy it took us and most toy companies it would take a year to get from go on a project to having it on the shelf, which meant that even if if we're reading it in February, we weren't going to have product until February, which is well past the toy business, the, the toy sell, You know, September to November was the toy business. All the other toy companies had said, you know, it's just we can't do it. You know, it could be gone before we even have tooling done.
0: The timing just wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Um, from what I understand, the agreement between Fox, Lucasfilm, and Kenner wasn't finalized until shortly before the movie was coming out. So with that short time frame and, and no real guarantee that the movie was going to be much of anything, you know, beyond the black and white photos in the script, did you guys have any other reference material
1: to work from? And was the pressure pretty intense at that point? There wasn't any pressure because nobody else cared. Right. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> the upstairs guys were like, were pretty lukewarm on it because they were looking at the, the the risk the good thing is that bernie was willing to let us move on it even though it may not may not have uh, panned out but everybody was so passionate about it and especially me and davokada it was like well okay you can keep doing it as long as you don't screw up anything else that you're working on so we didn't have very much pressure but and beyond beyond the black and white photographs that we had they sent a snapshot of the X-wing and the Tie Fighter. The first, uh, the first prototypes were all based on just that information. So that's uh, until until the movie broke and we actually had a contract. We uh, we had we didn't have a lot to go on, but it was enough just to make our concept presentations, and uh, we we did a whole bunch of stuff. And I wish I wish I had had photographs and stuff of the very first things because we put together a presentation that filled a station wagon when Dave, Dave and I went out to California. And this was to Lucasfilm or to Fox or 20th century Fox. The first presentation was in March. At that point, the marketing department at Kenner was like, okay, we're, you know, okay, keep, you know, you're still, you still have to convince us and, and we got to be convinced. And 20th century Fox did really didn't know Kenner. Um, being a midwestern toy company, so we went out the night after we were supposed to be there. The Monday after the Oscars, and the reason that we know that the reason I know that date is that we flew out there with all these ideas, got a station wagon, drove to the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and they didn't have any rooms for us because the Oscars and people had stayed over. So they booked us in a little boutique hotel for the night, and then next morning we went to a Twentieth Century.
0: Ah, uh, all right. So after that presentation, did you develop a working relationship more with Lucasfilm or was it still through Fox? And were you able to get any early glimpses of the movie as it was getting close to being released?
1: After the after the presentation in March, I went out to California on my own in April and we put the date at the 4th of April. I went out to see Lucasfilm when they were in a bungalow on the Universal Studios lot and got to... Uh, Meet Charlie Lippincott and Carol Wokarski They were the uh, the marketing people, and that was on that trip. They had pulled together uh, blue line copies of Joe Johnson's concept art and some. I don't think they gave us any new photography, but they they let me go through all these blue line drawings and pick out things that I thought might help us with our development stuff, and then. That afternoon, Charlie asked me if I wanted to go see Dailies, which I pictured I was going to see a a dogfight for sure. But uh, so I went out to the ILM studios, which at that time were in in, uh, Van Nuys. And uh, that's where I met uh, John Dykstra, I think, was there and some of of the other film people. They were, you know, I could I walked through and saw X-Wings and TIE Fighters on model stands and there was a Death Star and all that stuff but at the time they didn't want me to take pictures but i got to see them and then i got to go in dailies and it, but i went in the dailies room and it's there are pictures of it it's just a big room with a bunch of very ugly old couches <laughs> a screen and at that time everything's on film the the people that needed to see dailies came in and sat down and whoever was running the show said okay you know run the film So the lights go down, and the film runs, and all I see is a big black screen and some blinking lights down in the corner. (laughs) And then the lights go back up, and they say, great job, and everybody leaves. So my dailies were hardly worth the drive, but... (laughs) <laughs> at least i saw daily somewhere those blinking lights might be in a frame of film that you know it'd be hard to pick out
0: yeah so it's probably from like a control panel or a, a laser blast something that some optical effect that was just one small part
1: yeah it'd beca- be it, at that time everything was done in layers and layers of film so i'm i'm convinced that it's in that scene where ben kenobi is powering down the uh a tractor be. Somewhere in there, there's some blinking lights that must be the ones I saw.
0: <laughs> yeah, visual effects were tedious in a completely different way back then. Um, so in terms of when you first saw the movie in its complete form, when did that take place and where? Kenner got
1: an invitation to go see the movie at a market research screening. They were uh, they were showing it at the North Point Theater in San Francisco to a market research Audience, they pick people by demographics and all that stuff, and uh, so I got to see it. I, I'm i the only one from Canada that went to see it the first time, so I was all by myself and 400 or something. I can't. I've got the number somewhere of how many people were in the theater. So they had the place really tweaked for this showing, and people piled in. And they had seen on the marquee that they were there for the uh, premiere of Alaska, and the. The lights go down and you know Star Wars hits the screen and then the crawl started and it was like you could tell that people were questioning what they were gonna what they were actually seeing because you know it's wait a minute you know what are, I thought we were seeing Alaska then when the princess ship comes over I tell people it was amazing because as the sh- princess ship comes by and the lasers are flashing by her and then the destroyer starts in the Sound system with the subwoofers was now as the nose of the ship comes in, you start feeling the vibrations from the subwoofers, and when the engines come in, you're feeling the, you know, you're feeling the theater from the seat of your pants, and it was like the the uh, all the air got sucked out of the theater because it was like you know <gasps> everybody's gasping as this thing ha- starts happening, and then for the next two hours, it's just pretty much you know a great story, and at the end. People stood up and cheered you know, when they blew up the Death Star. And it was like uh, I didn't have anybody with me, so I couldn't turn to my friend, you know, that would normally be there maybe, and say, did you see that? <laughs> I had to go out and out in the lobby and, I'm not, and find a payphone and called somebody in Cincinnati. I'm not sure who I called, but I called somebody and said, you can't believe what I just saw. This is the most incredible movie you're going to see. And then uh the next day I saw it a second time. So I went May 2nd, I went down to uh LA and uh drove on to the Paramount lot and they were showing it in the Paramount Theater for the for the press. So I saw it a second time and then flew home to tell people they really screwed up by not going to see that movie. It's good for me. I mean it was just I, I had too much fun and I did all the Hollywood stuff so it was like I'm uh I I was then jaded. (laughs) All the rest was just downhill from there. Yeah. Um, In
0: terms of reactions, was the press as excited about the movie as the market research audience?
1: I don't think, well, the reaction wasn't nearly with this one, what it was with the audience. Because all those Hollywood writers and stuff that were there, the press people, they're like, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to do something way beyond Star Wars to impress them. But it got, it got excellent coverage after that. They may not have reacted the same, but they wrote really good things about it. So,
0: You know, thinking about this trip that you took and witnessing the movie by yourself at such a pivotal moment is, is just kind of crazy.
1: It's probably the most significant thing that happened in all that period. Well, I tell this story uh, now, because looking back, I, at first when I did interviews and stuff, it didn't really dawn on me, but that... May 1st presentation to a market research group was the only, I call it, the only virgin audience. It was the only virgin audience to see Star Wars. There may have been somebody out in the audience that read Starlog magazine, but I'd be hard-pressed to find them. So a theater full of people coming in to see a movie that they had no idea. Um, That audience, that reaction, when they jumped up and cheered at the end, was really the only pure reaction because the next day when they showed it to the press that that from that point on until because it was still two weeks away or three weeks away before the movie opened, there were three weeks of everybody talking about Star Wars, yes. so that audience that saw it once was the only one that saw a pure uninfluenced reaction, and I was there for it. And that—that's really—that's what really blows my mind. It's like I got to see it the only the only pure way, and it was like those people really had a great time. So that was really fun. I just uh, it really the more I think about it, it's just, that was crazy that I crazy that I was the only one there to do it to see it.
0: Yeah, it's just uh, incredible. So beyond the opening scene, were there any other moments that stood out to you as a moviegoer? And then. Were there any that, as a toy designer, were standing out for you from that first time you saw it?
1: Well, what popped up most was I knew we had something, you know, that not to pat myself on the back, but I did say it kind of feel like I, I was right. <laughs> this is this is going to be something special. Yeah. It still could have flopped, but it was pretty evident that there was something happening. So... uh I mean, I'd love, I'd love the movie. The first one, a new. Everybody asks, you know, what's your favorite movie, and you know, a New Hope is by far the only one that that really stands out because because it was the one I was most in, intimately involved with. It also was the first one that really uh, it put all the elements together. It was like a combination of pirates and you know World War II and all that stuff all kind of rolled together. So you you had the all the the necessary parts the bad guy was really bad and the good guys were you know really nice and but the, you know the dog fights and the the death star and stuff that just all those elements together really made it uh, it really was kind of tying together a lot of different kinds of stories into one i really thought it was pretty uh, pretty it was, you know pretty special Bernie Loomis called me into his office.
0: This is former Kenner Design Manager Ed Schiffman.
1: And he said, "Um, I want you to take your staff to a movie this weekend. And I said, Bernie, it's it's a holiday weekend. And he says, so what? We just bought the rights to this movie. I want your staff to see this. He didn't tell me anything about the movie. He didn't tell me what the name of the movie was. At least they paid for the tickets.
0: And another former designer, Tom
1: Beaumont. They took the whole department, all of the development people over. They rented a movie theater, and we all hauled in cameras in there so we could take pictures of the screens, looking for all the elements in that movie that we could create into toys. box and George Lucas bring you an adventure. Everybody was just blown away at the number of machines and all the fighters and the
3: robots.
1: Everybody that walked out realized that we had something here that was
3: incredible. Not a product line. It was probably a phenomenon about to occur.
0: So uh, some of the other Kenner designers have mentioned that Bernie Loomis had mandated that people working on the project go see the movie over a holiday weekend. uh, Presumably that Memorial Day. And I was just curious if you remember any of your colleagues' reactions when they came back to work and if you tried to prepare them for what they were about to see.
1: I mean, the prelim people had, by that point, when the, when they saw the movie, I mean, the movie broke on the 25th, so right. I saw it again a couple times before Memorial Day. So um, most of the people at Kenner had, there were a few that probably went to the theaters early, but um, the mandate thing, I, I didn't go, I didn't need to, because I'd already seen it. Before, I'd already seen it so much and been, you know, now involved with Lucasfilm and asking for photography and all that stuff. Because I got, I ended up being the liaison with them for the first year and a half. I was the one, you know... Asking for at that time tapes of the the sounds from the X wings and fire fighters, so I got you know and and more photography. You know, by by the end of May, it was like really critical for us to get uh, much better photography on the on the vehicles and stuff and uh, and any any detail stuff. Like we were looking for. You know, pictures of the cannons on the Death Star. You know that we were going to put in the playset and all that. None of that existed. They hadn't, unlike now or unlike the later movies, they didn't like archive photographs of everything they did. You know that's why some mistakes were made and we we had to uh, kind of compromise on things. But uh, the people that went to see the movie, I'm sure I don't recall actually talking to people other than they were all they're like, no wonder we're working on this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've touched on this a bit, but as it became immediately clear that this was going to be a huge movie, was it a pretty rapid transition there at Kenner in terms of trying to go into overdrive? What was the, the vibe like once the theatrical success was so clear?
1: After May, from then on, it was, there. you know, there were whole teams of people put together to work on different aspects of it. You know, they, there were, at the time, at that time too, everything's done manually. The figures were all drawn. They were sculpted in wax. The vehicles all were done, were laid out by designers and engineers on, you know, with the pencil and paper. So it was a whole different time. Everything took a lot more energy to get to the end point. You know, all the all those vehicles... Uh, the x wing and TIE Fighter and the, even the Millennium Falcon were all done in, on, in wooden patterns out of mahogany. They're, they were like works of art. And uh, that's changed a lot now because a lot of it's done digitally. But at the time, it was all a lot of manual labor to get all that stuff done. And, in, and push the schedule, because the first figures um, didn't ship until after the first of the year, but even that was a push, because we were starting in May, and technically, we shouldn't have had any figures without a really accelerated schedule. They shouldn't have been out till May. So, it was a, a, a major feat, and Kenner wasn't a huge company at the time. I mean, we were kind of the middle of the pack, but some of the things that we had done, nobody had actually done at Kenner, so... It was a learning curve and a crunch schedule all at the same time.
0: Sure, and and on the marketing side, I'm sure it probably helped that the movie was seemingly never leaving theaters over those first few years. It had that really long first run, and then it was re-released in 78 and 79. And I was wondering if you had any insider memory on how Kenner's marketing strategy was changing. With the re-releases, the theater itself was becoming a point of sale, or at least a place to promote the toy line with rebate programs and stuff like that.
1: Yeah it well it, it it did have kind of a life of its own because it was in the theater for over a year the first run by the time we were shipping real product in 78 a lot of times product would get to a store and would never make it to the shelf because there was a you know there was such a demand that if a carton of action figures came into a store they people would be plucking them out of the carton before they could put on be put on the shelf that's why Collectors can find unpunched cards, never got to the uh, peg, so they never got, you know, that little keyhole never got uh, punched out. So for a while, it was really, it was, you know, everything, everything we touched on Star Wars was kind of golden. And it took a while for that to wear off, so. From Kenner's Star Wars collection comes the Stormtrooper, the Sand People, and all 20 action figures, including new Hammerhead, Snaggletooth, and more, each sold separately. And now Boba Fett, Star Wars villain with his laser rifle. Boba Fett is not yet available in stores, but you can get him free with four proofs of purchase from any Star
3: Wars action figures. Details on specially marked packs at participating stores. Offer ends May 31st. Star Wars action figures sold separately from Kenner.
0: With the development of the movies and the toys much more in sync with the Empire Strikes Back, how did that change things for you? Uh, did your role start to shift a bit?
1: Yeah. Um, before Empire, sales had started to slow a little. The sales department was getting very nervous and they were, and mostly through the marketing department, get, giving signals to Lucas that we really needed something to really, a big wow thing. It couldn't just be more of the same figures and more of the same stuff. So Lucas, who was very protective of the license because he'd been warned not to, not to be lax about it, was really reluctant to do anything. He was like pushing back, saying, "I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spoil it." So um, it, he finally relented and said that we could do one figure from the new movie, and that's when uh, Dave and I flew out to San Francisco and uh, went to take photographs of what turned out to be Boba Fett. Their offices were in an old house in San Anselmo. It was before the, the ranch existed and we had lunch with his dog Indiana <laughs> sitting around you know, sitting around in this what used to be a parlor and sitting in the some sofas and having lunch. And then they got an actor dressed in the costume, the Boba Fett, and then I took pictures of it. I went and took turnarounds of the figure that uh, we would bring back, and that's what I used as the basis for the Kitbash model.
0: So this was the the costume that had had some color to it it was close to pretty much the final design
1: yeah it was not it, we yeah they the uh, drawings that Joe Johnson did uh were all done in white that, but they had the figure the the costume was going to be mostly gray and the costume that we photographed the I that I used for the kit bash never made it to the screen okay. it was modified before it got on screen and people talk about the the eyes on his helmet and stuff Our, my model had the eyes on it because that's what the photographs had um and they get it got changed as it went on screen, and you know it, that happened. I don't know when they actually shot the boat, the because Boba Fett in the second movie was a couple seconds. You know, it's right, like right, see really See him, but um, it was it was probably shot seventy nine or eighty. It was probably months after we actually saw it. I tell people that was the trip I most. It was a great. You know, the the good part was I was in on a top secret thing on Star Wars for the next movie. So it's like. I'm in. I'm. I'm in the. I'm in the crowd here. This is. This is where I want to be. Dave Okada and Gary Kurtz went off to have some meeting somewhere, so they they disappeared, and I was left with George Lucas in his office and his dog, and we're just sitting around looking at his his office, and it's. He had a Frank Frazetta painting on his wall. Frank did covers for Conan the Barbarian and all these Viking things. He had a painting of the Death Dealer, which is this big black uh, Viking with the big horns on his helmet and sitting on this giant, uh, look like a Belgian horse, you know, big thing. And he has the painting. He's got the the actual painting of it. And I said, you know, what's really crazy is I have that poster in my office. (laughs) (laughs) And he had an old tin uh Buck Rogers Ray Gun and we talked about his he had part interest in a comic book store in New York from some high school friend. And we we're just like talking about, you know, love the movie, blah blah blah. All kinds I don't even remember what we talked about, except for those kind of glimpses. You know, great great to be on in on the top secret stuff, but I had an hour alone with George Lucas and I never asked him we should have asked him for a job. <laughs> and it never came to my mind. I was way too way too loyal or something to kenner and having such a good time it was like didn't even dawn on me to say you need a toy designer working here with your guys so that you know we could communicate better
0: (laughs) wow yeah not many people can say they've had an experience on the inside like that um so were you able to visit the set on empire uh on kenner business so to speak
1: Without going back and digging, I'm not exactly sure when, but Jim Black, who had become the uh, product manager for in the marketing department for Kenner, he came on in May of 77 when they actually decided it was a real project. So he had been working on Star Wars, and and then uh, I think it came after Boba Fett, because we... We were invited to England and went to Elstree Studio and got to tour the uh, Hoth Planet, uh, the interiors for the Hoth Planet. So we got to see the Hangar Bay and um, the caverns, the ice caverns and stuff on where the hangar was. And uh, got to see Yoda for the first time. And then uh, they also had Tauntauns. We got to take, you know, take a look at the, uh, the life-size tauntons. I didn't get to ride one, but they had a couple that were that Han Solo and, and Luke Skywalker would ride on, you know, she, so they could move them around, They were pup, you know, they could be animated. Then they had smaller maquettes and stuff laying over, you know, sitting around. The only thing was we weren't supposed to take any pictures, but I could say I need pictures of that, and I need pictures of him, and I need all this stuff. Um,
0: Did they actually
1: let you take any pictures? no they they wouldn't let us take any pictures, but I okay. got to tell them what I wanted my I had my memories on my memory on yeah <laughs> uh
0: okay, so as Empire was getting closer to release and the toys are being produced how how far along in that process did you stay with Star Wars and when did that
1: change for you uh my last project on Empire was uh the Tauntaun. I had invented the uh the trapdoor in the back of the that we used in the back of the Tauntaun and Duback. So this was my last contribution to Star Wars. Because in uh, the middle of 1979, Dave Okada was gone. He left town to set up a pre-prelim group with Bernie Loomis in New York and left, uh, left the company. And the new VP of preliminary design and I didn't always see eye to eye. And uh, at about that time, I was... I was looking at potential opportunities outside the company. And at the same time, the marketing department kind of knew that I wasn't happy. And I got invited to uh, take a job as a project manager in the marketing department. So as I say, I, went, I decided to go to the dark side.
0: <laughs> yeah, and this was uh, not on Star Wars, but on, on what property?
1: Well, I, yeah, I started out doing pre- preschool and then uh, in early 1980, I took over Strawberry Shortcake. I was Strawberry Shortcake's father for five years. It was a complete change. I, after I was talking to some people at a Comic-Con, we were talking about this dark side thing. That, that's kind of the reference at Kenner is the marketing department was kind of the dark side, but it's, I went to the dark pink side <laughs> from then on. I worked almost exclusively on girls toys at Kenner. And then for a brief time, I went out to Hasbro and then I came back to Kenner and all that time I spent on things like strawberry shortcake and Jim and the holograms. And I came back and worked on care bears for a while. So I, I went to the girls side and only looked at uh longingly at the uh star wars side
0: yeah that, that, i was wondering you know did you did you kind of keep an eye on what was going on with star wars and were you still invested in some way in in what was going on with the toys but but the movies too do you remember seeing empire or, or jedi for the first time and, and how you reacted to them
1: well i re- yeah i remember seeing them all i mean it, i like most fans because i was genuinely a fan anticipated seeing the next movie i couldn't i mean three years was a long time and i kenner and lucas things kind of became formulaic they kind of followed the form there there wasn't a lot of deviance from you know what was in the movie a lot of people pitched stuff at kenner for you know let's go a little outside the movies and stuff it took a long time to convince the licensing people and george at lucasfilm uh to deviate much from the So it was a lot more like we're making replicas, you know, and we're playing the we're going to play the story you see on the screen. So it took a while. I mean, there were some the droid factory is kind of clever, and the mini mini rigs and stuff were the mini rigs were really outside because George was like, well, I never never see it on screen, and the pitch from Kenner was, well, you just didn't see them, you know, they were in that trench you couldn't see or behind the rock over there so they they made it a little harder to to go very far and uh, from you know deviate much from the movie but i thought the the product you know it got better some of the times it got better not all the time but um they there were a lot of people with some good ideas and not all of them made it to the to the toy store but mostly i watched it from a distance i you know, I wasn't involved in any of the meetings about what was going on. And that's part of the reason I went to the dark side. I, I was frustrated by the guy that ran the department and the guy that he put in, in between he and I. I really couldn't stand.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that would definitely make things tough. So to bring things full circle and uh, to, to the lighter side a bit, uh, what aspect of Star Wars had the greatest impact on your career? And
1: what about it has stayed with you? Well, the thing that's really made my third career here now is that having been there at the very moment that the script came in and being the first one that actually read it and said, let's do this, has led to being this kind of really pompous, but kind of lauded at Comic-Cons and events all over the world now to kind of come and speak or be there and sign autographs so it's really humbling when i uh, when I go to these things and people the thing i hear the most is you made my childhood or you made my dad's childhood and with each one of those it makes me feel a little bit older uh, realizing just how big Star wars changed the world in a lot of ways the smallest ones are pride that it changed the toy business it changed licensing and generally it changed marketing in America and around the world And having been there at the inception, I take a little bit of pride in the fact that if it hadn't been for me, or if it had been picked up by another toy company, it might not have happened just the way it has. So that's kind of neat.
0: Thank you so much, Jim, for for coming on the podcast. Uh, It was great to hear all these stories. And, um, yeah, I I look forward to seeing you at at a convention before too long.
1: It was good meeting you, and I'll look forward to putting a face with the name.
0: It's great to see Jim becoming an increasing presence at Star Wars events throughout the country over these past couple of years. And uh, be sure to check out the recording of his panel with Chris Jorgulius from the Celebration Chicago collecting track, as well as his interview with Chris B. over at JediBusiness.com for some great deep dives into the creation of the classic Kenner toys. And the clip of Kenner's Ed Schiffman and Tom Beaumont was courtesy of Brian Stillman's fantastic documentary, Plastic Galaxy, which is available on Amazon Prime and iTunes. Thanks again so much to Nelmini Klure, Dave Brot, and Jim Swearengen for sharing their stories. I also wanted to give a plug for some of the resources I regularly rely on for this podcast. Michael Coates' incredibly researched theatrical retrospectives for the digital bits, Cinematreasures.org, and J.W. Rinzler's making of books on the Star Wars trilogy. All invaluable. Full show notes and images can be found in the episode post on the main site, starwarsatthemovies.com, and you can stay up to date with the project on Instagram at 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 StarWarsAtTheMovies, on Twitter at 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 SWAtTheMovies, on the site's Facebook page and group, and as always, feel free to reach me via email at starwarsatthemovies at gmail.com. Thanks again so much for tuning in, and until next time, remember... Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun.